0: Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira, and this is a podcast that shines a spotlight on a person who was born on this day at some point in history, somewhere in the world, who made a positive lasting impact. Today, July 22nd, we're going to talk about Mildred Loving, the woman who overturned the interracial marriage ban. So before we get into the tragic, important, and beautiful story of the Lovings and their marriage, which became a lightning rod of national scorn and judicial contention, It's necessary for us to paint a grotesque background regarding the history of interracial marriage bans from their surface racism to their dark roots in compulsory sterilization. This episode will discuss topics that some may find uncomfortable, including forcible sterilization and sexual assault. So please take care when listening. If you look up miscegenation, a term the United States came up with during the Civil War, meaning the marriage or reproduction between races, the three countries that are listed as being enforcers of this marital segregation of ethnicities are Nazi Germany, apartheid era South Africa, and the U.S. Notice the U.S. doesn't have a specific time frame on it, because for us, this spanned a multitude of eras. In Nazi Germany, interracial marriage slash procreation bans were on the books between, not surprisingly, 1935 and 1945. In apartheid-era South Africa, whites and blacks could not reproduce or marry from 1949 to 1985. And in the U.S., in the U.S., bans on interracial dating and marriage were present, at least in some states, from 1691 to 2000. Let's think about that for a second. Nazi Germany banned interracial marriage for 10 years. In South Africa, it was banned for 36 years. And in the United States of America, land of the free, home of the brave, it was banned for 309 years. Yeah, even though our human history today, Mildred Loving, was the person whose marriage overturned Virginia's interracial marriage ban in 1967, which spurred the federal government to proclaim these laws unconstitutional in the remaining states that were still hanging on to it, guess which state was the last to overturn this ban and did not do so until the year 2000? I'll give you a hint. It's in the South. If you guessed Alabama, you win a perfectly good reason to never live in Alabama, Here's the crazy thing: even when the state passed the Alabama interracial marriage amendment in 2000, it only passed with a 60 percent vote. That means that 25 counties out of the 67 in the state believe that no, a black man and a white woman, or Hispanic woman and a Chinese man, or whatever combination comes out of your melting pot Yahtzee cup, should not be allowed to get married. And just because I'm petty like this, I'm going to name the counties that voted against getting rid of the interracial marriage ban. Jackson, Cherokee, Del Cobb, Cleburne, Clay, Randolph, Cusa, Chilton, Bibb, Lawrence, Franklin, Marion, Winston, Lamar, Fayette, Walker, Coleman, Blount, St. Clair, Pickens, Choctaw, Washington, Escaba, Covington, and Geneva. Y'all need Jesus. So Virginia, the state that our drama plays out in today, was actually the first state to officially ban interracial marriage. They put it on the books back in 1691, mostly in response to the rapidly growing population of enslaved people and the public fears of diluting bloodlines. Of course, there were vocal proponents of interracial marriage throughout the 1600s to the 1800s, but they were usually either social outcasts or ignored religious zealots or just regular people in love. Very few were people in positions of power, which meant white, wealthy, socially and politically connected heterosexual males. One of the few men of some minor influence who supported interracial marriage and took it to a completely creepy level, was a guy named Zephaniah Kingsley, who actually published multiple pamphlets stating that the most beautiful and healthy children only came from mixing the races. And while this idea in and of itself is technically a perfectly legitimate one, Kingsley's manner of walking the walk was to select four of his enslaved women as his personal breeding machines. One of them, Anna Kingsley, supposedly the only one he actually married, but there's no proof of this, was purchased by him in Cuba at the age of 13. Kingsley had actually praised how convenient it was to be able to buy a wife. So this slave trader, who had the nerve to call himself a Quaker, he has his four enslaved concubines in one of his plantations in what is now Jacksonville, Florida, and his wives produce nine mixed-race kids for him. So this was the kind of creepy nutbag that was promoting interracial marriage and reproduction as a way to justify his statutory rape practices. So not exactly the beacon of integrity and moral fortitude that you would hope for in an advocate. Anyways, back to Virginia. So Virginia was the first state to put a law on the books banning interracial marriage back in 1691. And as this law was constructed in the 17th century, there were a lot of loopholes that a contemporary legal scholar could poke more holes in, so to speak. So in 1924, the Virginia General Assembly wrote up something called the Racial Integrity Act. And this act was basically a legal reinforcement of the old interracial marriage ban. And it stated that all marriages had to either be between two white people or two quote unquote colored people. A white person was defined as a person who had no trace whatsoever of any blood other than Caucasian. The one exception to this was something called the Pocahontas Clause. And the Pocahontas Clause said that if you were less than one sixteenth Native American, you could still legally call yourself white. This clause was added after the Virginia Blue Bloods who, up until the Racial Integrity Act had bragged factually or fictionally about being descended from Pocahontas, well, they began to panic, right? Because saying that you were descended from Pocahontas was a cool bit of history to drop into your cocktail party chatter until it turned into something that could technically nullify your marriage to another melanin challenged individual. So having money and connections. Virginia's social elite managed to get this Pocahontas clause added in so they could breathe a bit easier. This same ethnic largesse did not apply to anyone with African ancestry. Indeed, having even one distant relative who was Black was enough to taint your whole gene pool. This eugenicist dream law, created six years later, was called the one-drop rule, referring, of course, to the amount of Black blood required to make you a social pariah. So just who was the human pile of garbage who helped to push the racial integrity law through the Virginia General Assembly? Well, this guy was Virginia's registrar of statistics, Dr. Walter Ashby Plecker, an avowed white supremacist, a leader of the self-explanatory Anglo-Saxon Club of America, and one of the worst human beings to ever be born on American soil. And after Plecker ensured that this law was put into place, he was put in charge of enforcing it. The governor of Virginia at the time, Governor E. Lee Trinkle, a ridiculously named ham sandwich of a man who bears a striking resemblance to Herman Munster with a glandular problem. He passed this law, but he winds to Plecker that he should not harass Native Americans too much, to which Plecker responded, quote, I am unable to see how it is working any injustice upon them or humiliation for our office to take a firm stand against their intermarriage with white people. So basically, Plecker took this law and he went right through center with it. He wasn't just scouring marriage bureaus for records. He was determined to make any mixed-race person's life a living hell, whether adult or child, dead or alive. Plecker started actually going to schools and telling superintendents to expel any kids who were of mixed race. He went to the cemeteries and ordered the bodies of people of, quote-unquote, questionable ancestry dug up so he could decide if their corpse looked white enough to remain in a white cemetery or if their remains it should be carted through town to the black cemetery. So, when there are only two legally recognized races, white and black, what happens to everyone who falls outside of those designations? In this case, the most impacted population were the Native Americans, whose only crime was being here first. They certainly couldn't be labeled as white, so Native Americans of all tribes were lumped under the color designation because Plecker decided that all Native Americans must have some African blood in them, and they were just trying to pass as Native American. In 1930, Virginia had 779 Native Americans listed on the state's registry. By 1940, there were only 198. So Native Americans were being legally and systemically erased from history. Not content to repress human rights, traumatize children, and disrespect the dead, Plecker decided to take it one step further. He asked Nazi Germany for advice. Specifically, he wrote to Dr. Walter Gross, the head of Nazi Germany's eugenics program, applauding their success at sterilizing 600 mixed-race children, saying, I hope this work is complete and not one has been missed. I sometimes regret that we have not the authority to put some measures in practice in Virginia. The Rhineland Bastards, as they were called, were the products of German women and French soldiers of African descent, and the Nazis went to work sterilizing them very quickly. By the end of the war, 1,800 children would be kidnapped, slash arrested, and sterilized. But Plecker was wrong when he lamented the lack of sterilization practices, as there were already forced sterilizations going on in Virginia, and indeed across the United States. Virginia was actually the state with the second highest amount of involuntary sterilizations, reaching 6,683 people by 1957. The first highest state by a huge jump was California, with an astounding 19,985 humans being forcibly fixed. The 6,683 Virginians were composed of 4,043 women and 2,640 men. Out of the women sterilized, 2,095 were labeled as mentally ill, 1,175 were labeled mentally deficient, and the remaining were just labeled other. Forcible sterilization was being used not just to theoretically stop mentally impaired people from having babies, but also to prevent black men from raping white women. At least that was part of the argument being made. The black man was seen as being such an animal-like being that he was out of control of his own urges and he was being driven to try to lighten his own shameful bloodline by impregnating white women. So chemical castration of black men with literally no explanation was very commonplace in the South. The problem uh, for Plecker was that, unlike Nazi Germany, he could not get a law on the book saying that all mixed-race kids should be forcibly sterilized, much to his disappointment. What he could do was throw his weight behind a sterilization act, which gave hospitals, mental hospitals, and prisons the right to label someone as feeble-minded, an intentionally vague term, which which would permit uh, physicians to chemically or medically sterilize almost any adult or child that they chose. Dr. Joseph de the head of the Western State Hospital in Staunton, Virginia, and one of the biggest champions of eugenics, also idealized Nazi Germany's success, writing that, quote, "Germany in six years has sterilized about 80,000 of her unfit." while the U.S., with approximately twice that population, has only sterilized about 27,869 in the past 20 years. The fact that there are 12 million defectives in the U.S. should arouse our best endeavors to push this procedure to the maximum. The Germans are beating us at our own game. Okay, glossing over the fact that he called the forcible sterilization of humans a game, the 12 million defectives that he referred to doesn't really make sense because there was never even nearly that many patients in mental institutions at that time. So in hindsight, it actually appears that when he said defectives, he was lumping mixed race and minority people into the quote-unquote defective category along with the feeble-minded. The population that disproportionately suffered the most from these laws and practices were, of course, Black women and Native American women. Being one of these women and going into a hospital to have your baby ran you the very real chance that you would be forcibly sterilized before you were allowed to leave with your baby. Some doctors just sterilized the women during surgery and never told them. But it was not just people of color who were the victims of the eugenics movement. Eugenics was not only about eliminating minorities and those with a history of mental illness. It was also about eliminating the poor, regardless of their skin tone. Over 4,000 poor white Virginians described in court as shiftless, ignorant, and worthless class of antisocial whites of the South who created problems for quote-unquote normal people were forcibly sterilized simply due to their socioeconomic status. The most well-known case of this was that of Carrie Buck. Carrie was the eldest of three born to Emma Buck. Emma later married a man named Frederick and they had a daughter named Doris and a son named Roy. Frederick abandoned the family and Emma was thrown into a Virginia state colony for epileptics and feeble-minded after being accused of being a syphilitic prostitute. Carrie was put into a foster home under the care of John and Alice Dobbs. Carrie was an average student, average grades, average intelligence. No one ever labeled her or thought of her as feeble-minded, whatever the hell that means. Then when Carrie was 17, she was raped by John and Alice's nephew, Clarence Garland. When it became obvious that she was pregnant, she told Alice and John what Clarence had done. Panicked about scandal, John and Alice dumped Carrie at the same mental institution that her mom, Emma, was at. John and Alice told the institution that Carrie was incorrigible, promiscuous, and people-minded. The superintendent of the institution, Albert Sidney Purdy, announced that both Carrie and Emma had the mental intelligence of eight-year-olds and that they posed a genetic threat to society due to their promiscuity. The pregnant teen had no way to contest any of this, and she spent her pregnancy in the insane asylum, giving birth on January 23, 1924, to a daughter she named Vivian. Since Carrie had been labeled mentally unfit, her baby was handed back over to her lying, sleazy foster parents, John and Alice, to raise. Little Vivian was examined and labeled feeble-minded as well. So the decision to sterilize Emma, Carey, and Vivian was made by Pretty and worked its way up the state legislature all the way to the Supreme Court, where Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. ruled that the sterilizations should take place, saying, quote, three generations of imbeciles are enough." A few years later, when Emma's half-sister, Doris, was hospitalized for appendicitis, doctors quietly sterilized her while removing her appendix. Doris married, and she struggled for years to have a baby, finally finding out why she was unable to in 1980. Carrie would marry twice, her first husband, a widow with six kids who died a decade after they were married. Carrie was married to her second husband, Charlie Detamore, until she died in 1983. Her only child, Vivian, died at the age of eight from a gastrointestinal infection. Even though the little girl had been labeled as feeble minded she was an exceptional student and even made the honor roll. This historic court case of Buck versus Bell, the Bell being John Henry Bell, superintendent of the state colony for epileptics and the feeble-minded, set a gross precedent which inspired other states to start upping their forced sterilizations of people deemed mentally deficient. To date, the Supreme Court has not overturned Buck versus Bell, despite the fact that it's considered one of the worst Supreme Court rulings in the history of the country up there with Dred Scott. Since it's never been officially overturned, it's only through a series of other court cases, such as the 1942 Skinner versus Oklahoma case in which petty criminal Jack Skinner was sentenced to be sterilized for stealing chickens, that the practice has gradually faded away. During the Skinner case, Justice William O. Douglas pointed out that the punishment was too arbitrary to be just as it was applied only to poor criminals, as wealthy men brought in for things like embezzlement would never be sterilized as part of their punishment. So this court case put a stop to sterilization being used as punishment, But it didn't put a stop to the sterilizing of those labeled as feeble-minded. Any protection that mentally or physically disabled people have against compulsory and involuntary sterilization, they received in 1990 with the passing of the Americans with Disabilities Act. So now that we have laid the scene, let's dive into the life of our human in history, Mildred Loving. So Mildred was born in the small, unincorporated town of Central Point, Virginia, located in the northeast section of the state. Mildred was of African-American and Native American heritage, with Cherokee and Rappahannock tribal blood in her veins. The county was a strict Jim Crow one, but there was still a large mixed-race population. Richard Loving, Mildred's future husband, was a white man from Confederate stock, but he worked as a construction worker under one of the wealthiest Black men in town, and he grew up alongside many Black kids. Richard met Mildred when he was 17 and she was 11, and they started dating when she was in her teens. And at the age of 18, Mildred got pregnant. In June of 1958, they decided to get married. But since interracial marriage was banned in the state, they went up to Washington, D.C. to get their license. Mildred did not actually know it was illegal, but Richard might have. Regardless, they got married in D.C., and then they headed back to see their families in Virginia. It was July 11th, 1958, five weeks after they got married, that Richard and Mildred woke up to the county sheriff and two deputies with flashlights in their bedroom. The cop asked Richard who the woman was in bed with him, and Mildred said, I'm his wife. Richard pointed to their marriage license tacked up on the wall, but the cop said, that's no good here, and he hauled the two off to jail. Richard spent one night and was released in the morning, and pregnant Mildred spent a few more days in jail the Lovings appeared before Judge Leon Basil. They pled guilty and they were sentenced to a year in prison. However, the judge agreed to waive the sentence if the Lovings left the state and vowed never to return, telling them that if God had intended for blacks and whites to marry, he would not have put them on separate continents. So he banished them from Virginia, telling them both as they left the courtroom, as long as you are both alive, you are felons. So Mildred and Richard paid their fee of $36.29 each, and they moved back to D.C. for the next five years, having a total of three children. They would occasionally go visit family in Virginia, but they could never go together. By 1964, they were really frustrated with not being able to go see their families together in Virginia. They felt socially isolated, and they were having money problems too, so Mildred wrote a letter to Attorney General Bobby Kennedy, who advised her to contact the ACLU. So she reached out to the ACLU, explained what was going on, and the ACLU was like, okay, we've got your back. So these two young lawyers, Bernard Cohen and Philip Hirschkop took the case. Their first move was to ask that the case be vacated and the ruling reversed by the original judge. The request was ignored by the state of Virginia for a year. So Cohen and Hershkop uh, stepped it up a notch and they filed a class action against the U.S. District Court of the Eastern District of Virginia. And this finally got a response from Judge Basil, who wrote, quote, Almighty God created the races, white, black, yellow, Malay, and red, and he placed them on separate continents. And, but for the interference with his arrangement, there would be no cause for such marriages. The fact that he separated the races shows that he did not intend for the races to mix. During this time, Mildred and Richard and their three kids, Sidney, Peggy, and Donald had secretly moved back to Virginia while they waited out the legal process. So Cohen and Hirschkop's next step was a big one, heading to the Supreme Court to decide whether or not the ruling by Judge Basil, and indeed Virginia's whole Racial Integrity Act, was on a direct violation of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Cohen, who was taking the lead on this, pointed out that if the framers of the Constitution had wanted to specifically ban marriages between the races, they could have easily done so in explicit language. The Loving family was entitled to feel protected under the law, just like every other family. They were also entitled, Cohen pointed out, quote, to wake up in the morning or go to sleep at night knowing that the sheriff will not be knocking on their door or shining a light in their face in the privacy of their bedroom for illicit cohabitation. For real, for real, the idea that cops can come into your house in the dead of night with no warrant on the tip of a busybody neighbor and come into your bedroom to see who you're sleeping with has Handmaid's Tale written all over it. Mildred and Richard did not attend the actual court hearing, preferring to keep themselves and their kids out of the circus. Richard did issue a statement for Cohen to share with the court, and it was, quote, "'Tell them I love my wife.'" Shockingly, the Supreme Court was listening, and the case that Cohen made was a strong, not to mention just enough one, for the court to rule in favor of the Lovings on June 12, 1967. The decision wasn't unanimous and it came down to a common understanding that making distinctions in the interpretation of the law based on a person's race is simply unconstitutional. And today, June 12th, is known as Loving Day across the country. So this federal ruling labeled bans on interracial marriage as unconstitutional and 33 states changed their policy swiftly with a few hangers on dragging their feet. And in the case of some states, like we talked about with Alabama, they dragged their feet for 35 years. After the ruling, Richard and Mildred and their children moved back to Central Point where Richard built them a home. The family had a happy eight years together until the night of June 29th, 1975. Mildred and Richard were driving and they were struck by a drunk driver. Mildred lost her right eye, and Richard lost his life. Mildred and the children buried their 41-year-old husband and father and chose to remain in the home he had made for them. Mildred never remarried, avoided the spotlight, and declined interviews. She issued a rare public statement on June 12, 2007, the 40th anniversary of the Loving versus Virginia verdict. My generation was bitterly divided over something that should have been so clear and right. The majority believed that what The judge said that it was God's plan to keep people apart and that government should discriminate against people in love. But I've lived long enough to now see big changes. The older generation's fears and prejudices have given way, and today young people realize that if someone loves someone, they have the right to marry. Surrounded as I am now by wonderful children and grandchildren, not a day goes by that I don't think of Richard and our love, our right to marry and how much it meant to me to have that freedom to marry the person precious to me, even if others thought he was the wrong kind of person for me to marry. I believe all Americans, no matter their race, no matter their sex, no matter their sexual orientation, should have the same freedom to marry. Government has no business imposing some people's religious beliefs over others, especially if it denies people's civil rights. I am still not a political person, but I am proud that Richards in my name is on a court case that can help reinforce the love, the commitments, the fairness, and the family that so many people, black or white, young or old, gay or straight, seek in life. I support the freedom to marry for all. That's what loving and loving are all about. Mildred passed away the following year on May 2, 2008 at the age of 68 from pneumonia. Her daughter, Peggy Fortune, said, I want people to remember her as being strong and brave, yet humble and believing in love. My sources today were Wikipedia, the History Channel, the New York Times, and NPR. Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday celebration of Mildred Loving. Please join me on August 12th when we learn all about Gladys Bentley, the Harlem Renaissance singer, performer, and piano player who broke all the rules. See you then.